All right, take your Bibles and turn to the book of Hosea this morning. Law and order, the practice, Boston legal, JAG, Perry Mason, Matlock, the verdict, to kill a mockingbird, a few good men, the list could go on and on and on. I think it's safe to say that we as human beings are always intrigued with courtroom drama. We all love that movie, uh, that show that brings us into the courtroom and intrigues us with what's happening, why they're there, what's going to take place in the end. There are features in a courtroom drama that quickly draw our attention. Maybe it's a case that's more complicated than it originally appears, and there's a twist as a key witness comes to the front. Maybe it's lawyers who grapple over moral dilemmas, witnesses who offer surprising testimonies. Maybe it's a connection to real-life events outside the courtroom. Or maybe for some of you, it's just seeing Matthew McConaughey as a lawyer. The truth is, we love to watch a sharp-tongued lawyer in action. Heated altercations, suspense-filled cases. Whether it's real life or on the screen, the courtroom is inherently dramatic, and it's an inherently dramatic stage. Conflict is built into the proceedings. Everyone seems to have a part to play, but no one really knows what the outcome will be. Life and death are at stake in the thick intensity of very personal situations and stories in the courtroom. Well, after the shocking opening scenario in this book of Hosea, where Hosea marries a prostitute, we expect this story to settle down some. The drama, however, only increases in chapter 4 as we really step into the courtroom. There's controversy. There's indictment, sentencing, even a verdict. The defendant is a brash and outspoken prostitute. The plaintiff is her recklessly loving husband. It's all the elements of a blockbuster courtroom drama. No one really knows what will the outcome be. Oh, it might seem obvious, but as we've already seen so far in the first three chapters, we should expect the unexpected. Last week, as we began studying together this message from the prophet Hosea, we encountered God's love revealed in God's mercy. This morning, as we enter into this courtroom, we'll once again encounter God's love revealed, but this time, we'll see it in his faithfulness. And again, as I mentioned last week, as we're setting aside our human logic and presuppositions about the love of God, whatever those might be, we want to look with fresh eyes at God's love revealed in this story. We will, and as we do, we will once again catch a glimpse into the character of God and the nature of his reckless love. If you remember from last week, this story begins not just in chapter 1, but at the very beginning of time. And as it continues, we see God's restoration plan begin to unfold as he makes a covenant with a man named Abraham, stating that he would become a people, a people blessed by God, numerous as the sand on the seashore that cannot be counted. Abraham and his descendants, later known as Israel, however, spurn God's covenant. 
They refused to worship God and God alone and eventually turned to idols, idols that are made with hands. And despite their turning from God, they soon find themselves in peace and prosperity. That's why and when Hosea shows up on the scene. For you see, Israel's prosperity had led them into a spiritual complacency, which ultimately led to a spiritual infidelity. And a quest, and in a quest to grab their attention, God sends this prophet Hosea. He sends him not only to speak on his behalf, but to do something entirely unexpected and dramatic, to marry a whore. And to top that off, to have children with her. It's crazy and unexpected. We scratch our head and wonder, what is going on in this story? But isn't that how God often works? In the unexpected, in the unconventional. See, Hosea's bizarre love for Gomer is God shouting at his people to turn from their adultery, from their giving of themselves to other lovers, other gods, and to return to him their Redeemer, their husband, and their true love. Stepping out of Hosea and Gomer's dysfunctional home in chapters 1 through 3, we now find ourselves in chapter 4 in the midst of a court of law, you could say. This, however, is not the next event in Hosea's personal story. To our surprise, we actually don't hear anything more at all about Hosea and Gomer, their unconventional marriage throughout the rest of the book. Rather, their story acts as a foundation for the rest of the book. For as we saw in chapter 2, Hosea's reckless love lavished out on the whoring Gomer is an enactment of God's amazing love for his people. And so this morning, we step behind the scenes here in chapters 4 through 10 and come face to face with the stark reality of Israel's sin. Here in the courtroom, we find the, the details of their illicit affair. We hear the accusations. We see the evidence. And we even have a verdict. And yet we see something illogical, amazing, unexpected. God's love revealed in faithfulness. So our message, our passage begins this morning by laying out the plaintiff's accusations in chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3. Follow along as I read. Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel. For the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bonds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns. And all who dwell in it languish, and also the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, and even the fish of the sea are taken away. This opening statement here is strong and to the point, as is customary in legal proceedings. He clearly explains the controversy he has with the defendant. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love. And no knowledge of God in the land. There's a threefold accusation from God against his bride, his people. No faithfulness, no love, and no knowledge. Now each of these are relational terms. Marriage 
terms that symbolize a covenant that has been made between two parties. And so it's not hard to imagine in our minds how these statements would, would sound coming from a distraught spouse. She's been unfaithful to me. She doesn't love me. She doesn't know me. She doesn't even try to understand me. And these indictments lead us from the outskirts of what has happened to the very core of this story, the very heart of Israel's problem. They were in a relationship that required both to be faithful to one another, a faithfulness built on love, which should have generated a knowledge of one another, one another's likes and dislikes and quirks. And that has now been broken. Their marriage, covenant, agreement has been dishonored. The defendant, we see, has been not true to her word. She has dismissed her obligations. She has rejected her covenant commitment and her marital love has been discarded. And going even further, this broken covenant has had massive ramifications. There is swearing, lying, murdering, stealing, committing adultery. Bloodshed follows bloodshed. Remember Hosea's child Jezreel, which means bloodshed. Here we have this list in verse 2 of five representative sins as examples of the effects of this broken covenant. They're all clear violations of the Ten Commandments that the children of Israel would have been given there at Mount Sinai. To curse, lie, murder, steal, commit adultery are to break the third, ninth, sixth, eighth, and seventh commandment. Each of these evils have flourished virtually unchecked among God's people. And each are rooted in their unfaithfulness, in their lack of love, lack of acknowledging God. Without knowing God and his ways, the people have gone astray. This, however, did not only affect them, as we see in verse 3, it affects the world around them. The land mourns, and all who dwell in it languish. All the beasts of the field and the birds of the heaven, even the fish of the sea, are taken away. In this verse, we can't help but hear the echoes of the fall. In this verse, as the history of humanity, specifically the history of Israel, is re- or sorry, the history of humanity is replayed in the history of Israel here. Just as Adam was given a beautiful creation to keep and tend to, So Israel was given a beautiful land of Canaan to care for, a land flowing with milk and honey. But in both scenarios, both Adam and Israel rebelled. Both scorned God's covenant. And therefore, even the land is cursed. The land mourns. All creation groans as it is subject to futility. This opening statement here verses 1 through 3 is powerful and it sets the mood for the remainder of the hearing tension is now filling the courtroom as these accusations have been made we can hear the hurt we can see the pain in the plaintiff's eyes we feel the devastation his heart is broken but as we glance over to the defendant She stands there, rather stoic. The accusations are announced, and her eyes are simply glassed over from her drunkenness. She is disengaged. 
from all that is happening here. She's disinterested. There's no faithfulness, no love, and no knowledge. Well, if these accusations aren't strong enough to capture the judge's attention, the evidence certainly will. And so next we see the evidence laid out really from chapter 4, verse 4, all the way through chapter 8 and verse 14. The plaintiff now plainly states his case against the defendant. Society has been affected, the land mourns, and even the priests have rejected knowledge and have forgotten the law of God. Look down at verse 4. Yet let no one contend and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priest. You shall stumble by day, the prophet also shall stumble with you by night, and I will destroy your mother. My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge, because you, you have rejected knowledge. I reject you from being a, being a priest to me. And since you have forgotten the law of your God, I also will forget your children. The more they increase, the more they sin against me, I will change their glory into shame. They feed on the sin of my people. They are greedy for their iniquity, and it shall be like people, like priests. I will punish them for their ways and repay them for their deeds. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply, because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine, which take away the understanding. The evidence is rather alarming against these faithless leaders of Israel. Because of their faithlessness, the people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Because these leaders have rejected knowledge, they have forgotten the law of your God. So the more they increase, the more they sin against God. It says, they feed on the sin of my people. They're greedy for iniquity. They have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom. These leaders, without a question, have been unfaithful in the task that they were given. And they have led the people to destruction because they rejected the knowledge of God. Instead of leading the people to God and to his law, teaching them to walk in his ways, these leaders forgot the law of God. In fact, in verse 8, we see that the priests have even degenerated to the point of rejoicing in the sin of people because it meant more business for them. They were greedy, it says, for their iniquity. The more sin meant the more sacrifice, which meant the more fresh meat for them. Even further, these faithless leaders had replaced worship of the true God with gods made by hand. They were actively encouraging the worship of idols. I mean, you think about this. This is the people who had the story of Exodus and had had this story passed down from generation to generation. The story of them being saved from the false gods of Egypt, where God, in his power, showcased his power over each of those gods. They're removed from that land, they're passed on, and now these leaders are saying, go back to worshiping those false gods. Their faithlessness had a dramatic effect on the whole nation. And in verse 12, the absurd has seemingly happened. Look down at verse 12. My people inquire of a piece of wood, and their walking staff gives them oracles. Because these faithless leaders have rejected knowledge, the people have been led into false worship, false love. The point has come that the defendant has even started to take guidance from a walking stick. 
The word picture here is almost humorous, if it were not so accurate in its rebuke of our own hearts. You see, even as we're reading this story, I think it's extremely easy for us to disconnect ourselves. In the first three chapters, we find ourselves thinking, oh, I cannot even be, imagine being Hosea. There's no way I would be able to do what he has done. Or we find ourselves looking down on Gomer and even the children of Israel she represents, thinking, oh, I'm nowhere close to that spiritual infidelity or adultery. I mean, I would never think of such things, of taking guidance from a walking stick. I am far more faithful to God. And in doing so, we remove ourselves from the story, as is far too often the case when we read certain passages in Scripture. But let me encourage each one of us to step back into the courtroom this morning and take our seat. As a matter of fact, take our seat in the defendant's chair. Because the accusations and evidence within these chapters, while they're appalling, Paul says in Romans chapter 1 that all humans, you and I included, have exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. We have exchanged the truth about God for a lie. The truth is we have taken part in this horrible exchange. We do not worship God, nor do we trust him as we should. G.K. Chesterton has famously said, When we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. Instead, we worship anything. And so, you and I have found ourselves loving another. You see, this is not just Israel's problem. It's all humanity's problem. We worship whatever we think will offer us satisfaction and joy. Oh, that could be the new vehicle. Could be the affirmation from our boss or our spouse. Maybe it's the newest and latest technology. I mean, you name it, our hearts can turn it into an idol. It can be a walking stick that we take our guidance from. And this is what has happened to the Israelites. Their spiritual complacency in the midst of prosperity and peace had led to spiritual infidelity. Without the knowledge of God, they had turned to worshiping sacred trees, verse 13 tells us. And in verse 14, it explains that they had even engaged in ritual prostitution. The evidence against Israel is indisputable. Their false love and false knowledge, their faithless leaders, are all evidence of false worship in their hearts. And so, further explained in chapter 6, if you turn over there, we see in verse 4, it says, What shall I do with you, O Ephraim? What shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. Look at verse 6. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Here the plaintiff in a burst of emotion turns to the defendant and looks into her bloodshot eyes and pleads with her once again. What am I to do? You never truly loved me, did you? Your love was always shallow and erratic. All I wanted was true love, nothing else for you to truly know me. This is a plea of an agonizing, 
frustrated husband to his promiscuous bride. And once again, we can't help but sense the heartbreak of the jealous husband. We feel his despair. Her whoring was nothing more than proof of her fraudulent love. And if that isn't enough, the evidence continues to stack up. Look at verse 7. Like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. They've rejected knowledge. Their love has been distorted and now unfaithfulness. She had been unfaithful, adulterous, deceitful. She was fickle. Her affections were always wavering. And at the end of chapter 7, Israel in her unfaithfulness is said to be like an overheated oven. Her quiet passion, slowly dying out from lack of stirrings. Verse 4, but then in an instant she erupts violently and unexpectedly in unbridled lust. Verse 6, we also see throughout this these chapters, she is like a half-baked cake. Neither one thing or another. Oh, not totally pagan, but neither is she a holy nation that she was called to be. Neither, cop, neither cold nor hot. Just like that church in Laodicea, in Revelation chapter 3. Israel is lukewarm. She's like a deluded old man, it says in these verses, who attempts the stunts of his youth and his overpowered. She's like a senseless bird, flitting about, never setting, settling, never committing. She's like a faulty bow, like a like one of those fairground rifles. You point it at the target, but the bullet always veers off course. The defendant has made a show of repentance at times, as we see in chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, but the truth is she has never followed through people of Israel are fickle and untrustworthy. They are unfaithful. Once again, in the midst of these comparisons in these chapters, we hear the heartbreak of the plaintiff. We hear the husband, look at chapter 7, verse 13. I would redeem them, but they speak lies against me. It's almost as if the plaintiff looks at the judge and with tears welling up in his eyes, tears that he can no longer hold back, he ashamedly concludes, she has broken the covenant, she has rebelled against my law. She has cried out, my God, I, we know you. But then, just as quickly as Israel has said, we know you, God, she has spurned the good and turned to other gods. You can almost hear and say, it's true, most honorable judge, her actions drown out her words. And so at the end of chapter 8, we read this sober declaration. Israel has forgotten his maker. This here is an echo of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6, which says, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Israel is who she is because of God. Remember in our study of Exodus that this people of Israel were nothing, a small group of people, but yet God chose them to be his holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a treasured possession. But once again, she has forgotten him. 
Again, we must remember that this, though is not just the problem of the descendants of Abraham, but the problem with the descendants of Adam, all humanity. Oh, we're all promised security and blessing in return for trusting God and his word, yet we turn away. We were all unfaithful. Again, we have to remember in this story, we are Goma. We are Israel. These accusations, this evidence, they hit close to home if we're completely honest with ourselves. The accusations against the defendant Israel are proven just as they are proven in our lives. The evidence is explicit. The verdict is then read loud and clear in chapters 9 through 10. They are guilty. Look down at chapter 9 and verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exalt not like the peoples. For you have played the whore, forsaking your God. You have loved a prostitute's wages on all the threshing floors. It doesn't take long for the judge to hand out his, this verdict. There's nothing at all to question. And so the sentencing quickly follows. They shall not remain in the land of the Lord, but Ephraim shall return to Egypt, and they shall eat unclean, unclean food in Assyria. The verdict is passed out, and the sentencing that follows is removal. The Israelites will be removed from the land, and that's all too fitting for the harsh word in verse 1, prostitute was no exaggeration. Israel had both politically and spiritually given herself to foreign lovers. And for that, she should be removed. In fact, what we're seeing here is actually the carrying out of the covenant agreement made back in Leviticus chapter 26, where they were to have blessings for obedience, for faithfulness, love, and acknowledging God. And the punishment for disobedience, for their unfaithfulness, their false love and forsaking God. As a matter of fact, turn back to Leviticus chapter 26 quickly with me. Leviticus chapter 26, starting in verse 14. God here is laying out the punishment if they were to disobey and break the covenant. In verse 14 it says, but if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you will not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. You see, they have been told this is what's going to happen. That if they would follow God in his ways, he would bless, would bring them to that land. But if they were to disobey, here's what takes place. I will visit you with panic with wasting disease and fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heart ache. You shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. Now, notice the punishment in these verses. Visiting with panic, verse 16. Those who hate you shall rule over you, in verse 17. I will let the wild beast against you, in verse 22. I'll strike you sevenfold for your sins, in verse 24. I'll destroy your high places, cut down your incense altars, verse 30. I, this is unrelenting. God continues to explain that the land will enjoy its Sabbath rest while his people are in the enemy's lands. 
and what the people of Israel will be experiencing as Hosea pronounces in chapter 9 will be the result of their breaking their covenant with God. They will be removed from the land just as God had promised they would if they spurned his rules and abhorred his statutes. Their removal from the land will only be one part of their punishment, however. For as the sentencing continues back in Hosea chapter 9, we read that they will also be rejected. Their offerings and sacrifices will not at all please God. They will have no place to celebrate their festivals and the day of the feast of the Lord. For Israel, the day of punishment has come. The days of recompense have come, and Israel shall know it, Hosea declares. They have not heeded the warning from the prophet, but have instead considered him to be a fool. And so God will remember their iniquity, and he will punish their sins. It says their glory will fly away like a bird. God will drive them out of his house. He will love them no more. Now this is some sentencing. Serious punishment for a serious crime. And verse 17 is the climax of this punishment. My God will reject them because they have not listened to me. They shall be wanderers among the nations. See, God had previously led his people from the wilderness wanderings into this promised land. And now it says he will drive them out of the promised land back to wandering in the wilderness. Again, as I read this, I don't know about you, but it seems as if God's restoration plan that started in Genesis 3 seems to be unraveling in the people of Israel right now. The story of salvation seems to be going in reverse. This is not how it's supposed to be. God's people are supposed to obey him. And chapter 10 continues the sentencing, and there's a removal and rejection that just continue. They have repeated injustice. They've trusted their own ways. Because of their great evil, they're utterly cut off. What's happening here? The future is not at all bright for the defendant. She has sown her wild oats and is now reaping her just desserts. The verdict is read. Sentencing explained, so it seems like the case is closed as we come to the end of chapter 10. Or is it? Chapter 11, verse 1, we read, When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of, G out of Egypt, I called my son. See, though these chapters are depressing and filled with all the appalling details of Israel's love affair with other gods, they hold out little hope for the future and only considerable pain to come. Thankfully, it's not the end of the story. For one day, hope will come. It will emerge out of the judgment. Love will break through the pain. How? Why? Because God is faithful. In the midst of this terrible account of the punishment placed on Israel for adultery, her infidelity, for her unfaithfulness, we see that God is still faithful. Oh, it's not at all logical that God would act towards them in faithfulness, towards those who are unfaithful. Her unfaithfulness would be met with God's faithfulness, but God remains true and faithful to his word. He holds up his end of the bargain. The covenant which he made, he will, in fact, keep. And because he is faithful to his word, he will continue his plan of redemption. His restoration plan will not be stopped, nor is it going in reverse. 
For not too many years from later, from what we're reading here in Hosea, Jeremiah would prophesy of a new covenant between God and his people. He writes, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. You see, this is God's love revealed in his faithfulness to his word. And it's the remembrance of this new covenant that we will celebrate even this morning together in the Lord's Supper. The new covenant that has been established in the one child who does again come out of Egypt. We read in Matthew, Jesus Christ. God's love is most fully revealed in the faithfulness of his son, the true Israel. You see, in the end... The only one that is true and faithful is Jesus. The children of Israel fail. Over and over again, as we look through the pages of the Old Testament, they fail. They are soon overtaken by the Assyrians and will be removed from the land. Their punishment here that we read in Hosea is carried out for their unfaithfulness. And yet the prophets would speak of a faithful remnant within Israel. Those who would remain faithful to God, the true people of God. But even as the story continues, we see that there was only one who was truly faithful, Jesus. For no one has kept God's law as they should. No one has trusted God as they should. None of us have obeyed God as we should. None of us have worshipped God as we should. No one except Jesus. He was the only one faithful. And yet, what happens to Jesus? He's rejected, removed from his father for you and for me. Remember his cry from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here we see the people of Israel forsaking God. We know that we too as human beings have forsaken our creator and yet... God turns his back on the one perfect man for us. Because God's judgment falls on Jesus in our place, we are recipients of God's faithful love. Paul reminds us of this in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. The truth is, Jesus experienced the full extent of God's wrath. He took our punishment so that you and I might receive his blessing. And so he was faithful to the cross. Faithful to the end. That is God's love revealed in faithfulness. So, friend, if you're here this morning 
and have never experienced the faithful love of God through Jesus Christ. The verdict and sentencing is the same for you as it was for the people of Israel. Removal and rejection. But God. In Christ, redemption has been made possible. The reversal of God's wrath on you was accomplished at the cross. Hosea shared the message with Israel for one reason, that they would turn and repent, turn back to God. And so I share with you this morning, friend, for that same reason, that God is faithful in love through Jesus Christ, being rejected and forsaken, so that you would repent and turn to God by placing your faith in Jesus Christ, his finished work on your behalf. Christ Fellowship, God's bride, may the faithful love of our husband produce within us fresh faith for the present and for the future. As we see God's love displayed in his faithfulness, that many times it will be the faithfulness to his word to discipline us for our disobedience. But in the end, we know that he is faithful, that he is faithful to the cross. He will be faithful to the end to bring us home to be with him. So knowing that we, though many times still are unfaithful, we are the objects of God's ever faithful love. And only when we understand this do we begin to understand what love truly is. So, Father, we'd ask that you would continue to teach us of your faithful love. And as we take your word this morning, we've seen the carrying out of punishment for unfaithfulness. And yet, for our unfaithfulness, the punishment has been taken by Jesus. God, I pray that that act of amazing love would overwhelm us. That if there is someone here today who does not know your love, they are not in Christ, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would see the judgment for their sin, that they would turn to the one who has taken it for them. God, I pray for those of us who have done this, that you would, through this story, again remind us of this reckless, amazing love that you have for your people. That even in our moments of unfaithfulness, in our struggle with the flesh here on earth, that you are ever faithful, always drawing us near, in correction and in love, guiding us in your ways. So may we know that love. May we worship you in light of your love out of hearts that overflow in praise and love for you.